Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 183. Is that right? I should know this. I don't even think that's right. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Today is July the 8th, 2020. I'm sounding so confident, and I'm sure everyone is... I think I talked too much, man. I was listening to another podcast I did. I think I'm just going to really listen to you tonight, Jason, and not talk. I'm going to talk like half of the month. But my name is Wes Fryer. I am here in Oklahoma City, where I am the um, technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, um, ostensibly having uh, a little bit of a break in July. But, you know, since we're in the global pandemic, we've got a few few things going on. And uh, I'm thrilled to be joined, as always, by my compadre, who is going to do 99% of the talking tonight. I'll just be, <laughs> be quiet. It's Dr. Jason Neifer, who is continuing to keep uh, rowing in the galley of the Montana uh, Virtual Academy, as far as I have heard. Is that an accurate metaphor, Dr. Yes, Neifer? it is. Although, a quick correction, the Montana Digital Academy, the Montana Virtual Academy is a different thing and not uh, Montana. Oh, but what? Yeah, yeah. Long story. I'll tell you offline. Um, but yes, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of MTDA, the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in fabulous Missoula, Montana, on the University of Montana campus. Although my staff is uh, sprinkled around the greater Missoula area right now with COVID. But yes, uh, lots of interesting things going on in my organization, and uh, we're working hard to try to make sure that we can uh, staff up and create capacity as as best we can to serve in context of us being a supplemental program, and also you know trying to secure extra funding to see if we can't provide additional services should be needed by schools. But as much as I'd love to talk about that the next hour, I spent most of the last three days talking about that. And although I will not speak 99% of the time, because careful what you ask for, Dr. Fryer, I might actually do that. That's not what we're doing. Um, I do want to mention a quick shout out and uh, uh, an invitation, really. Um, Dr. Fryer is the keynote speaker, one of two um at next week's mountain moot a uh, mountain moot.com and the mountain moot is i think they've been going for 10 years now this is either the 10th or 11th anniversary of providing a what started off as a moodle conference in helena montana at my alma mater carroll college um but has expanded to be more kind of tech oriented and this year a shout out to their amazing staff, Ryan Hazen and Dan Case, both gentlemen that I have extraordinary respect for. They've done really amazing things at Carroll, uh, watching my alma, alma mater flourish with educational technology and really smart technology in the classroom has always been really a, a, an incredible thing for me to watch. But they made Mountain Moon free this year. They've put it online. And right now they have over 500 participants signed up. If you go to mountainmoon.com, you too can sign up to attend, and you'll be able to see Dr. Fryer as one of the two keynotes, uh, which is great. And then I will be joining my uh, uh, work partner in crime, Mike Agustinelli, to present a three-hour workshop on Wednesday morning on how the science of learning can help inform distant distant, blended, or remote instruction. And so we're really looking forward. In fact, Mike and I worked on that presentation for a couple hours today, and we're really excited to share some of the things we've learned in our time helping drive the Digital Academy. But this podcast is not self-promotion, unlike other podcasts, I guess. Um, but, hey, we're going to do a little bit, though. There's going to yeah. be... There'll be a little bit here and there, right? Um, we're going to talk about the news. And we actually carried over a lot of articles from last week because for those of you that listened last week, we had the mega link list in an extraordinary way. Uh, this week, uh, we will carry a couple of those topics over. And I see Wes uh, added some great stuff in that's new that we will talk about this week. But Dr. Fryer, I guess I, I would like to start, if you don't mind, because I was really taken aback by something on Twitter, which is usually a place where I get good professional um, encouragement and, and inspiration, but a name that was new to me, it's Kathy Brandt. She is the director, uh, senior director of marketing, uh, intelligence at NWEA, which used to be known as the Northwest Evaluation Association. Uh, they're uh, the group responsible for map testing, if that's something that you're familiar with in your neck of the woods in the United States. But she posted something that received some decent traffic on Twitter, but it's the clearest indication 
I've seen yet of the extraordinary challenge that I think schools are going to have to go through. And you'll have to excuse me for reading this 12-tweet tweet storm, but I think it's important to hear. So Kathy writes that over the last couple of weeks, I've been interviewing district leaders about spring closing and the fall reopening. Fall planning is really daunting. I knew that already, but talking to them brought it to life. One of them told me that with social distancing, to get all their elementary kids to school on a bus means they need 100 additional buses. They've got teachers at a high risk for COVID that will quit if they have to come in. They have other teachers who would quit if they have to teach remotely. They've got high High school teachers trying to connect with 150 kids and their parents every week, kids that like to text their teachers at 10 o'clock at night. They have middle school teachers who are single subject teachers, science, math, English, who are going to have to teach elementary kids in all subjects. And high school teachers are going to have to teach middle school kids. They've got curriculum designed for 180 days of instruction, but kids may only get 36 or 72 days in class with instruction. They uh, have, and they still have to add last spring's lessons to this year. They're trying to figure out staggered schedules, but don't have enough teachers to be in the classroom and simultaneously available to kids when they're at home. So trying to figure out how kids can basically teach themselves when they're at home. They're trying to make sure that all kids from a family, uh, the same family are in school on the same two days to provide the required and needed services to students with special needs, to keep parents informed, but rely on them less, to keep teachers safe and effective, to turn uh, a crisis approach to learning to a new normal that's just as effective as the old normal. And they may be facing massive budget cuts and still need thermometers because they need to check every kid's temperature every day. PPE, which as a side note, is still in, in very short supply, supply in the United States. Tons of disinfectant and hand sanitizers, more buses, more adults to, so, to enforce social distancing, more Chromebooks, more hotspots, more teacher training, more toner, more paper, more, 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 more. And as for learning loss, one district told me that uh, this spring, nine weeks of instruction were effectively reduced to nine days. So instead of 45 hours um, of instruction plus homework and math and reading during the nine-week term, high school kids had 13.5 hours of instruction each subject, that's it. Middle school uh, students had nine hours in each subject, and elementary kids had only six hours of instruction per subject. Now they're trying to figure that out and make up the learning loss while the pandemic is active, and their paramount needs to keep people, students and teachers, people, we're a people business, safe. It's daunting, and the amazing thing is that they'll figure it out. They're figuring it out because they have to and because it's their mission. They'll figure it out despite the political pressure to go back to, to the normal virus be damned, they keep uh, kids and uh, teachers safe, or that keeping kids and teachers safe is less important than the economy. It's amazing that despite all that's being asked to do, which is near impossible, they're committed to doing it, um, and they will try to do it with, with improving equity, reaching more kids, embracing innovation, and she says, I'm impressed and humbled. And again, a long read, and we typically don't read a lot of long-form stuff here, although can you call tweets long-form uh, here on the podcast, but I think Kathy's words are important, and I, I like the notion of this because I think it's realistic about the challenges ahead in the next 12 to 18 months. But the bottom line is, is that I know we'll figure this out. We'll have to. We just don't have a choice. But at the same time, it's going to be a challenging uh, a, a year or more ahead. And I know I couldn't be more impressed with teachers. And, and I've always been in love with the teaching profession and have had the utmost respect for teachers, administrators of, of all varieties, the many adults uh, in support staff that are critical to opening up school buildings every single day. And that work will continue. But uh, I, I hope you've heard this in the podcast here too. There is a lot of challenges ahead, but we're figuring it out. We'll step it up. We'll do our best and our best will be good enough because I just don't know if any of us feel another option. Wow. Yeah, that is phenomenal. On a purely technical note, yeah, we talk about short tweets. You know, that's an example of a Twitter thread. And when you reply to the same tweet repeatedly, it, it gets threaded. So you can see the entire thing. And she did a nice job saying one of 12, two of 12. A lot of times, I don't know when I start those, how many I'm going to have. So I just do a slash one slash two. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of issues there. And um, we are going to have to be flexible. You know, I think I might have mentioned on the show last week that I'll be teaching Spanish this next year. So, and I actually, I'm losing my classroom. I just found that out two days ago, which I'm a little sad about, but you know, our kids are going to have uh, devices that are not shared. Uh, they're going to be using their own devices. Um, but you know, we're, we're having a surge right now in Oklahoma, not like Florida, but you know, it's bigger than we've had before. 
and we're just going to have to be flexible and we're going to have to adjust. So I do think that one of the replies on Kathy's uh, Twitter thread there um, talks about reimagining. Kate Reynolds says there has to this this has to be there has to be a reimagine of thinking before schools can be reimagined. Every plan I've heard involves maintaining an arbitrary standard of sufficient class time. That's not realistic thinking. I mean, no question. This already resulted in gaps in learning for a lot of students. One of the things I think will which will probably be different everywhere is that there's going to be more requirements this time around than there was in our emergency emergency remote learning where in a lot of places things were optional. Some schools just stopped and said, Hey, we're just going to start the summer. Um, others had what they, what we called a no harm policy where you had an average of your past term grade. And, uh, anyway, there were different ways of calculating it, but it basically, it basically was protection for the student that, uh, recognizing home internet issues, connect, you know, things, you know, difficulties with finding assignments, the way things were organized, all kinds of, of different issues. And so <clears throat> it is going to be different when we have requirements, but I think we're, I think we really need to consider that, um, you know, the same curriculum, the same expectations, the same everything is not going to be realistic for a global pandemic and challenging, you know, in, in a challenging environment. So, Hopefully we'll, we'll seize the opportunity to first off help folks be safe, uh, ensure that students are fed, that they have meals, um, and, and that, you know, safety and, um, the, the health of both, both teachers and students. Because let's face it, teacher health is important too. And the comment that was in that Twitter thread about, Numbers of teachers. I mean, <clears throat> we have a relative who's opting to retire this year, you know, versus, you know, face um, w what she was going to face, you know, heading back to in, in, I think, the largest uh, high school in the state of Texas, you know, in, in the library. Um, so we're just we're going to need to remain flexible and we're going to need to collaborate. So this is a great call for all of us to be connected, uh, to share ideas, to, uh, you know, focus on wellness, focus on wellness for ourselves, for our colleagues and not underestimate, you know, the importance of relationships and words, those human connections uh, for, for not only students, but also for for colleagues, for fellow teachers, for staff members, for everybody who is involved in this, because we're in a marathon. It's not a sprint. Right. It's going to it's going to keep going for we don't know how long. And I would encourage everyone that's not, uh, I'm not saying journal per se. I, this is not a journal. This is really just a random idea book that I, I'm, I'm a pretty famous, uh, paper note taker. I've got at any given time, you know, a half dozen notebooks, uh, sitting on my, my desk of, of varying degrees of, of usefulness that, that have different pieces. You know, my, I think I've talked about in the past that I have a little EDC notebook that I go through about, uh, six or seven of these a month, just taking notes and doodling. But I've taken a, a composition notebook, traditional composition notebook, stuck it in a nice, in a nice cover, which makes it a fancy journal. Right. And I've been writing down, like when I think of things that, man, I want to remember this after this whole mess is over with, because I want to talk about this in greater detail than I think we can do during the crisis nature of the situation. I would encourage all teachers, administrators, any adult that's working in schools. And in fact, uh, on the odd chance that there are students listening to this podcast, you too, right? Like there are some lessons that we can learn from this that I think will be very positive for education after this is all said and over with. But if we um, if we don't take that opportunity to have some of these conversations when the pressure is less uh, uh, imminent, then I think we lose an opportunity to to waste the crisis situation to talk about uh, uh, better ways to do things in the future. But I guess one more time, I would say I don't say this enough, uh, but uh, uh, maybe I don't have the opportunity to say this enough. You know, teachers, you know, the, you're out there, you're doing amazing work. Do your best and we're all going to get through this together, but we, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a bit of a pain for a while longer. That is right. That is right. Well, on the news front, uh, let me just go through our topic. Uh, and, and hey, Peggy is here. Peggy, you can let us know where, where would you like us to go tonight? We've got, uh, new media, social media, Chrome OS, Google, privacy, media literacy, the tech correction, security, China, 
and miscellaneous before our Geeks of the Week. So Jason gave us our initial tweet. I think I'll just jump down to the tech correction, and I'll I'll do two quick ones uh, and get your thoughts, Jason. The first is Sheryl Sandberg's Facebook post from July 7th, 2020. Uh, both Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg, the two top dogs at Facebook, had a pretty significant conversation this past um, was it this week? Was that on Monday? I think it was this, uh, cause that was on the seventh, right? And today's the eighth. Was that yesterday? Wow. It's been a long <laughs> week. Um, talking about whether they're going, how they are going to work to keep the platform, uh, free of, um, of hate speech, um, how they're going to address racism, um, bigotry, um, you know, white supremacy. Uh, so <clears throat> this post that I just shared there in the chat, by Cheryl, which of course was on Facebook, uh, actually sounded fairly optimistic in terms of maybe what, what they were going to do. Uh, but the immediate article that the New York Times posted on the 7th in response um, was much less positive. And so the headline of that article is, Facebook fails to appease organizers of ad boycott. We mentioned this on the show last week that there's a large group, several hundred advertisers who are boycotting Facebook and, you know, money talks and advertising is like 98, 99% of Facebook's revenue. And so the prospect of losing that is certainly not something that Facebook wants to, to deal with. Um, and so there were very specific things that this group is calling for Facebook to do. And uh, one of the comments, I think I read it on a tweet, was that, you know, there, there's, there's not just points for showing up. I mean, I think there are some like I'm glad that they were actually meeting. This was, I think, in a Zoom call uh, with a lot of different, you know, nonprofit and civic leaders. But they really didn't commit to the main demands uh, they did. I think there is going to be a high level executive that they're going to. It says uh, Zuckerberg and Sandberg agreed to hire a civil rights position, but they didn't come to a resolution on most other requests. Um, and then the people said they re reverted to spin, firing up its PR machine, delivered the same old talking points. So I think it's positive that these groups are number one, getting Facebook's attention to focus on what is, what is horrific, right? And, and this is not a US only problem. In fact, in some cases, I think the, destructive impact of Facebook has been even greater in nations where there, there were either maybe one or just a handful of employees that spoke that language. Myanmar is an example. Uh, I actually used not uh, as an exaggeration, the hashtag Facebook kills, you know, in relation to some tweets to this recently, because there have been people killed because of disinformation that has been shared on the platform, just kind of mob mentality stuff that's happened. Um, and, and so Facebook, you know, bears a responsibility for this. And Jason coined the term months ago, the tech correction, and we are not seeing yet regulation in the United States. We've had, we had an executive order. We've had some stuff threatened that was really more politically motivated, I think, than it was necessarily wanting to tackle these kinds of issues that were talked about in this Zoom call. But I think it's good the conversation happened. I think it's good they're going to have a new higher level executive employee to try to focus on these issues. But I think there's a lot more work to be done. And I think it's really good that we're seeing this kind of pressure being put by advertisers who have really the most authority and power uh, other than government, but in terms of out of uh, you know, the society writ large, uh, I'm glad that they're putting this pressure on, but it doesn't look like it's led to substantive changes. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of the, the part of the notion for me for the tech correction is that this is the thing about Facebook, right? So there's been a lot of calls to boycott Facebook and there's been a lot of calls to, and I know some people that have left Facebook completely. I, I don't want to claim that there hasn't been real action there because there has. A good example of this is my, my own wife. Uh, she hasn't left Facebook completely. She logs on, well, really about once a month. Uh, for example, uh, last weekend, July 4th was my, my 16th wedding anniversary. Um, and uh, so I posted a picture regarding that. It's a special day for us because it's also my parents and her parents were also married on July 4th. And so we couldn't ignore the coincidence and and uh, got married on that same day. So it's a special day for us. And I posted pictures there. And she wanted to go and see the nice comments that people were saying about us, right? But otherwise, she stays off the platform completely. And that includes, lately, she's included Instagram in that. 
even though Instagram tends to be a little more photo driven as opposed to comment driven. I don't want to say people don't have the power to do that, but I think also people are figuring out the Facebook itself has value to them personally. And something that, um, and I think I mentioned this uh, uh, previously, maybe it was last week or the week before in the podcast, but Facebook is kind of important to me right now personally, because I don't get to leave my house for another year, right? That's a real reality that I, I'm facing. I'm fine with it. It's going to be fine. Our, our, our house is fine. Our jobs are fine. We're fine, right? But the bottom line is, is that I, that's my connection to a lot of people right now who I probably wouldn't have a texting relationship or a phone call relationship with, and you got to get to stay connected to hundreds of people from throughout my life to do that. And that, that has value to me. But at the same time, the platform itself seems to flatly ignore the fact that it has become a, a tool for, uh, uh, for I- extraordinary radicalization in your views. And I don't care if you're talking about, you know, uh, a, a popular culture point of view, right? Right. Whether you're a super fan of something or uh, a, a harsh critic of some other popular culture phenomenon, or you're talking about politics. And the bottom line is, is that Facebook doesn't seem to be doing enough. And all these articles, and, and I, I popped another one in there that, that gives some indication on this. I think I threw it under social media. Um, Facebook has received back an external review that it had asked for uh, on civil rights. And their, their review that they paid for said that there are several areas in which they have uh, fallen well short of being uh, proactive at dealing with really troubling trends. And this particular report, again, released today, uh, talks about how they needed to do more to talk about uh, uh, voter suppression and that um, uh, 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 they need to do more to make sure that that it's not being used to do things that are flatly illegal, right? Voter suppression uh, and, and preventing people from vote is, is illegal in many areas. Uh, they also wanted to, to civil rights to be more visible and a constant priority in Facebook's decision making. They wanted to invest more in, in addressing organized hate against, uh, 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 target groups that, that oftentimes are at the other end of, of, of hateful organized, uh, speech and more concrete examples, um, to address the worries about uh, I'm sorry, more concrete actions to deal with the perception that their logarithms are also biased. And, uh, you know, that, that's something they're going to have to resolve because I don't think humans not going on the Facebook platform is going to be enough here, right? I think advertisers, uh, their boycott certainly helps this, uh, uh, taking dollars away from Facebook helps this, but, it just doesn't feel like we're going to be able to get rid of this platform anytime soon. So we're going to have to pressure them to make the right call. That in my mind is tech correction, right? That is something that, you know, we're going to have to do something organized, whether it's formal or informal to tell the platforms we rely on that we just can't put up with this stuff anymore. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and flip to another related article because this actually links to, to Moodle Moot. Uh, my keynote will be uh, uh, entitled Media Literacy Now, Conspiracies and Culture Wars. I've been working on this for, uh, well, well, kind of thinking about it for a year, but working on it intently for the last couple months. <clears throat> I listened to a fantastic podcast, uh, which I went ahead and put under our media literacy category tonight. It's from, uh, it's called Your Undivided Attention. It's from the Center for Humane Technology. This is Tristan Harris's group. And this is called Episode 21, The World According to Q. And one of the way, I mean, one of the big differences, we've had white supremacists, racists, you know, people, haters. I mean, we've had folks like this since time immemorial. And by the way, we're probably not going to get rid of people who, I mean, that this isn't what I would be espousing or anybody like, let's, you know, let's force people to, you know, adopt a single view that talk about, you know, something that's 1984 and authoritarian. I think what certainly what what I would espouse and probably a lot of educators would be, you know, educating people and helping utilize a variety of different strategies to try to to help people grow in understanding and and grow in kindness and also um, to limit the amplification of those voices. One of the things Tristan Harris says in the that podcast series is that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. And this is one of the issues for the tech correction for Facebook as well as Twitter that, you know, we, we have had this explosion of social media, which has 
allowed many people to have a voice, but it is also allowing those platforms to be weaponized in ways that are amplifying outlier and in many cases, extremely harmful and destructive uh, voices and, and perspectives, you know, beyond anything that they've really had before globally. Uh, so my wife last night, and I, I don't know, I may write a blog post about this. One of her friends had posted something. It was a very, very long list of accomplishments for, we're not a political show, so we're not going to just dive deep into this. But anyway, it was a long list of accomplishments for our chief executive who's running for, for re-election as an incumbent. And, you know, she was wrestling with this. And I said, but what's the source? And she went all the way to the bottom and, and had this, this acronym. And what is that? Well, let's Google it. Oh, well, that's one of the acronyms used by QAnon, um, which is a global conspiracy that says that a ring of, of pedophiles is in charge of the entire world. And, and, you know, they call all the shots. It is extremely fringe. This podcast is really good and it points to issues that Jason's talking about with radicalization and the ways in which um, these kinds of messages have been amplified and these platforms are being utilized in very destructive ways. And I do think that this poses some existential threats to us as a representative democracy and to us as a society, because if we are if we are fractured and hating each other and we cannot get along and we cannot unify around, you know, common issues and we're unable to. Um, constrain, uh, you know, violence and all kinds of, of pretty bad things, you know, it really does uh, threaten the, the foundations of our civic society together. So a recommendation for that Undivided Attention podcast. We want to continue to watch the tech correction. And to Jason's point, yeah, we all have the opportunity to take individual, you know, action with respect to Facebook and Twitter and other things like that. But I think there's a lot here that we need to figure out. And I think that's an ethic we can bring back to the classroom as well with our students when we figure out how we can talk about some of these issues, which some of these are very polarized, hot button issues. We need to figure these things out. We need to be able to listen to each other. Uh, and frankly, I'll say this. I think podcasts are a huge part of the solution, right? The fact that, that yes, we can have fringe content and people can be radicalized, but we can also use this platform, this modality, this medium, to use words of Marshall McLuhan, <clears throat> this medium can be very constructive to allow us to listen to each other and to allow us to have some deep dives into issues that are complex and they're multifaceted. And I think we've got roles to play as educators in all of that, not only in, in catalyzing and encouraging the conversations, but in also equipping students to understand how to use these tools and to use these tools well, and to kind of overgird it all with this, you know, idea of, of using our, our voice and using our tools for good and not for evil. Absolutely. I could not agree more. All right. What else? Well, uh, let me check out here if there's anything else uh, from the social media, media literacy, tech correction stuff. Um, I would say that um, um, that in general, um, uh, well, again, I'll, I'll just say one more time. I find these tools absolutely invaluable, but I do think that it, it is true that we need to be having these conversations with students and we also need to be on the com on the platforms that they are on as well. I know that kids don't like it when the adults um, invade their platforms and sometimes we do uh, bad things to those platforms, right? I still laugh at the fact that Facebook was so controversial when it started uh, 15 years ago because uh, it was kind of a private party and it was for uh, college kids only. And then the what I call the momification of Facebook, when mom showed up on Facebook, clean up its act real quickly and now we're talking about Facebook in a context of that it's you know, providing all this potential societal harm but I would encourage that especially if you're a tech savvy educator don't uh, continue to jump into new platforms and check out maybe we'll find the platform that does uh, uh, keep us meaningfully connected without creating a, a um, I guess an, an, an evolution towards towards radicalization so I guess we'll see so and, and I'll say to Peggy, uh, so happy, Peggy, that you connected with the Undivided Attention podcast. I think, you know, books are 
wonderful. And we all have experienced the power of books and how important it is to recommend books. I think podcasts can really fit in that category as well. So I want to encourage everyone to subscribe to podcasts, to check out new podcasts, and to find ways to recommend uh, podcasts that you're finding, you know, enlightening, important, and valuable. Uh, and sometimes they're also just, you know, fun and, and entertaining as well. But yeah, good, good stuff. And that's, it's one of the roles that we aspire to play here on the EdTech Situation Room as a filter for the deluge of news and content that is out there. Peggy does that. I've been subscribed to, to Peggy's Nuzzle newsletter for a few weeks now and continue to get nuggets there. So it's one of the media literacy skills that we all need to be cultivating. How do we filter information? Who are our trusted sources? And what kinds of tools are we using to filter the exo flood of information, as it were? So I think, Dr. Neifer, we probably should talk a little bit about China. Can we do that a little yeah, bit? Please do. Where should we start? Uh, well, why don't we do a uh, an Ars Technica article. This is from July 4th and it's called 5G was going to unite the world. Instead, it's tearing us apart. And <clears throat> I think that when we've talked on the show about Huawei, about, you know, um, different aspects with China with respect to, you know, Hong Kong and, and protests there. We've talked about a little bit of the Uyghur minority and the use of surveillance to repress, you know, millions of people and, and, People think keep keep over a million people right now locked up in camps. There's all kinds of things going on. Um, this article, though, is talking about 5G technology, which honestly, I'm really looking forward to. I mentioned to my my daughter this this afternoon, we went on an errand. You know, 5G is going to be some like 20 or 30 times faster than our current cellular connections. It's going to have a shorter distance, so they're going to need to install more towers. Uh, but this article is basically highlighting how, you know, the world is having to choose sides. And so this isn't an Apple and Google thing. Uh, this is a United States thing versus China in terms of manufacturing. Now, there is another article, I think, that was linked there, and I put it in two. This was from June 15th. From Wired, U.S. companies uh, can work with Huawei 5G on other standards. One of the things that's really important about the Internet, right, is that it has common standards. You know, TCPIP is a protocol that is run all over the world by computers, by different web browsers. I mean, this is the whole thing. Like, do you remember AOL and you have mail? Uh, you were in an AOL network at one time <coughs> and email was not interoperable. And then, you know, we had this interoperability and, and that has been a, a tremendous driver. Well, one of the things that's real interesting from that uh, second article talking about U.S. companies working with it, I think is, this is a Reuters article, is that, you know, basically the United States and representatives of the United States wrote the 4G protocol. But according to these authors, China has really written this protocol. And a lot of the controversy over this has to do with surveillance and the power that companies can have to basically tap the lines and, you know, suck all the information out. There was a gentleman, I think, in 2013 named Ed Snowden, who, you know, informed us a little bit about things the United States was doing with regard to, um, you know, ingesting the Internet, basically, and uh, using, you know, uh, surveillance technologies to be able to do a lot of things with that information. So uh, 5G is still coming. Uh, I think it's important that students know about that, you know, what's going on between the United States and China. Um, and so, you know, we don't have Huawei phones for sale here in the United States. Uh, companies are having to make choices. I'll say that I hope, and I'm glad to see that article about U.S. folks being allowed to work on the standards because Internet standards, like it's important for us to be a connected global community. Like the Internet is important as a global thing. And we might have North Korea and Iran and, you know, some nations that at times have been termed, I think, appropriately rogue nations. <clears throat> that might not allow their citizens either, either to have access at all in the case of North Korea, apparently, or, you know, direct unfettered access, highly censored access. That is definitely a thing in a lot of, of places, a lot of countries in the Middle East, but, you know, also other other places, too. So I hope that we'll see web standards that can be, um, you know, broadly adopted. And I'm excited to see that. But we're still going to be, you know, years away from from 5G being a reality. However, maybe Elon 
Did you get registered, by the way, for for Starlink, or did your uh, relatives get registered, mm-hmm. Jason, to to become uh, the beta testers? Because you know, you guys could be the, the the target audience there. Right, I did. Yeah, I did. I did encourage uh, my in laws to do that because I really wanted them to have an opportunity because I do think there's a, a lot of future there. Um, it's interesting because I don't even know if there's five G access in Missoula, but in the last uh, forty eight hours, I've seen a couple of articles that really weren't worth mentioning here, other than the fact that mid range five G phones are likely to become available before the end of the year. And I'm not a thousand dollar phone guy. I'm a two three hundred dollar phone guy. And uh, my current uh, phone um, is a Moto uh, G Power, um, which is uh, uh, um, uh, an 8th generation Moto uh, phone that uh, was under $200 that has a a nearly two-day battery life, which is why I picked it up. But this is a cheap phone, but there's supposed to be one that's like this that's similarly spec that will have the 5G bandwidth on there. So it's suddenly interesting to me that that's happening. But... 5G was supposed to change everything, and it's been com- uh, almost completely MIA in the United States. I mean, I know that there's impressive stuff that's happening in, in, in big cities, that, but I hope that it would become a real option for folks that were in rural areas. And I realize that it's going to take some time to, you know, kind of litter the landscape with 5G towers, but um, I'm still cautiously waiting. So that's a very interesting uh, set of developments in regards to the international question there. And it's interesting that the post pandemic coverage like you still see articles about 5g but there's a lot of breathless uh excitement about 5g about a year ago and it seems like the fact that we haven't brought uh that hasn't become a real reality yet for obvious reasons including what what's being talked about in this article uh it remains interesting to me all right where to next sir well, uh, let's do some uh, items that are kind of carryovers from last week that were kind of more practical things. Um, I'm kind of the show Chrome OS guy, I think. Um, one of the things I think is super interesting that's going on right now in Chrome world, uh, I have noticed that the price of Chromebooks uh, is stayed steady, that the discounts that are usually offered have not really been that aggressive. And partly because I keep an eye on this market uh, to advise others, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a good Chromebook cheaply right now used on eBay. And I think used uh, 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 expensive Chromebooks, so middle and high-end Chromebooks, uh, used Chromebooks is the best buy on earth because uh, uh, you get it and it's it's basically new. My preferred carry Chromebook was uh, or is a um, an, an HP uh, 360X1, I think is the model number, but it's a, a, a four-year-old model now that is super thin, kind of looks like a MacBook Air, um, that it mine's a little bent and has a couple of, of, uh, you know, clear damage pieces on it, but still my, my, my travel laptop because it's, it's thin and light and has extra, a, excellent battery life. I got that for a song. I think it was under a hundred bucks because, uh, the frame was a little bent, works great, but I keep an eye on used Chromebooks, high-end Chromebooks because, uh, they oftentimes provide great value for, to me. And they're rare on re- eBay, and they're oftentimes going at, at just 20 or 30% less their retail price from a year or two ago. I think that's a sense of the computer shortages. But what's also happening quietly as uh, Mac OS moves towards ARM processors and Windows continues to evolve in its marketplace, Chrome keeps adding features that make it a more featured OS, uh, a full-feature OS. So Chrome Unbox report on June 29th that uh, there is a clipboard history manager on the way, native built into the Chrome OS, which is usually something you have to get an add-on for in, in the other major operating systems. Very convenient. I used to use one on the Mac, and I can't remember the name of it. I even looked it up tonight to find it. I couldn't. Um, but that's really interesting. Um, there's also uh, a, a series of apps that are uh, happening uh, now that are trying to kind of recreate a lot of the advanced features in things like Mac OS. For example, which I think you put this article in uh, West that uh, the Verge report a couple weeks back that there's going to be an AirDrop competitor um, on on uh, from Google. I believe that it's going to start on Android phones and will likely move to other architectures later. But it's adding those advanced features there, and I think it's really interesting that uh, the Chrome seems to be building um, a, a case that it can be a very advanced home operating, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, laptop or or desktop operating system. I didn't put this article in, but there's also some announcements that Steam is coming to Chrome OS. Steam is a gaming platform that allows you to download uh, games in a purchased library. It's really been revolutionary for me personally because I'm the guy 
guy that, you know, would buy a game and, well, I can tell you the game it was. Unreal Tournament 2004, I must have purchased 10 times because I'd buy it, I'd have my license key, I'd lose it. Uh, a couple years later, I want to play again with friends, I'd buy it. Uh, I'd install it, I'd have the key, I'd lose it, and now I just have purchased it once on Steam, and I can download it to as many computers as I want. I can only be playing on one computer at a time, which is the security procedure, but Steam is apparently coming to Chrome OS, which would allow a good percentage of the games that work on Windows, Mac, and Linux to also work on Chrome. The point I'm making is that I think Google's quietly making Chrome OS a full-featured operating system, and I... You know, I, I, I can survive entirely on Chrome OS. I think it's the power of the web that allows me to do that instead of these extra pieces, but it's really interesting that this is happening in the background. Um, and there's two other quick articles I want to highlight there, but just to toss it to you for a second, Wes, any thoughts about the expansion of Chrome OS? Well, I think last week or the week before, maybe it was last week, we talked about, uh, Minecraft education on Chrome. Yes. Huge, right? And that's another kind of sign of the same thing that, you know, Chrome OS is, is becoming more and more a platform that will enable lots of folks to do everything that they need to do and be wonderfully managed in the cloud. So think it's good. Peggy asked if I use the Chromebook a lot. I don't. Um, I, mine's laying around here. I took it to Egypt, you know, I didn't want to take my Mac and I, anyway, took some precautions for privacy, per, you know, purposes, things like that. But, uh, you know, we've got a lot of kids that are going to be using uh, Chromebooks, uh, you know, personally, not on a shared basis next year. Um, we got iPads that are being used as well. So I won't uh, preempt the announcements that will be coming later in the month about that kind of thing from our school. But right. I'm really excited about <clears throat> the kinds of uh, exploration and use, deep dives that teachers are going to be having with students, you know, using those platforms and then be able to, to much more uh, authentically and um, experientially answer that kind of question, you know, which platform do you prefer? Which one do you want, you know, all, all students in, in the grade level to have? Um, what are the kinds of things that are there limitations that you have? Are you bumping up into, you know, things that you want to do, programs you want to run? Or are you able to do everything you need to do? And yeah, the maturity of the web is certainly a huge factor in all of this. Right. Along with availability of two great office suites online, Office 365 and 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 Google Suite for for education, um, I, there's just nothing you can't do there. So, and then two other quick ones. These are both uh uh, uh one's a, a kind of a, a, a purchasing note, and the other one's an advocacy note. Uh, Chrome Unbox talks about three uh, cheap Chromebooks that they're actually worth buying. I have to say, something has happened in the last two years. There have been increasing numbers of really value-driven Chromebooks that are not terrible. And I will say, I've had really not great experiences with really low-end Chromebooks. I've bought a couple of them uh, in part because I, I use them to experiment at work. I want to see what my platforms look like and what my class assets look like on a very low-end Chromebook because I know that a lot end up at schools. But great article from Chrome Unboxed. And the one on there that's been a really big temptation to me is the Lenovo Chromebook Duet, which is actually a Chrome OS tablet. It's a 10-inch tablet, so that would be a smaller form factor tablet that's gotten it. Uh, an attachable keyboard. Um, I have my my Android tablets ten inches, so this is this is a ten inch tablet. We're talking relatively small, but the techies seem to love this uh, Chrome uh, a Chrome tablet. And the, one of the reasons why is because since Chrome OS has a guaranteed eight years of updates, it's not like an Android tablet which stops getting updates really usually within a year and a half of, of you purchasing this, whereas this will guaranteed get updates from Google uh, for a minimum of, of, of seven to eight years. But that's really interesting. And then a really interesting article that I've always knew was an issue, but I guess this articulates it really well. Um, this is from the other major uh, uh, Chromebook site. This is Kevin Tofels about Chromebooks. He writes on June 29th that Amazon needs to work on a big problem which is uh, uh, dealers of, of things like laptops and Chromebooks listing uh, things with misleading information, including things like uh, a Chromebook that may or be three or four years old. It's listed as the 2020 newest version of a Chromebook. I noticed this before Amazon and Apple used to, or started playing nice together again, that there would be things listed like newest version MacBook. And then I'd look at the specs. I'm like, that's not the case. I would look it up. It was a new... 
it might have been a new Apple uh, 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 MacBook Pro, but it was four-year-old model, right? So not accurate. That's the newest version. And what Kevin's arguing here is that Amazon needs to take more responsibility here. And I got to say, there seems to be some efforts on the part of Amazon to clean up some of the really gross listing practices that third-party sellers do. I've noticed in the last week, and I saw some articles about this the other day, that they're starting to list um, who is selling it to you. It's not as hidden anymore when it's a third-party seller. And those types of things are helping add some transparency to hopefully clean up the Amazon architecture. My one comment is that, that if you want to order uh, or get a laptop for your student or for yourself uh, for, you know, for August, man, I hope your order is in because it is tough. Um, at least some of the suppliers that our tech department has contacted, we're talking about like November ship dates for large numbers of Chromebooks. Um, we're actually ordering mainly iPads. So I think we are hopefully going to be having those come in before the start of school. We go back as teachers on August 3rd and then the kids come back the following week. But yeah, lots of orders. Um, and it just, it's interesting what kinds of businesses are exploding as a result of COVID. Um, I was at a pool store today and a guy who has his own business said that COVID has tripled his, his business <laughs> as a, as a pool guy. And, you know, if you're a, a Chromebook manufacturer, an iPad case manufacturer, the Logitech cases we're looking at, I understand are going to be delayed a little more than the iPads. So, you know, hopefully your tech department has got orders in. Hopefully you as a parent or just a computer using person, you know, have have your order in, because if not, um, be prepared to wait. There's a lot of folks that are scrambling to try to get additional devices, but those are some great tips. And I'm also frequently asked by parents, which you got to be careful, right? When you give advice about purchase this, buy this, and it's usually better to have some guidelines rather than saying this is the one. But uh, those are some some good articles. And I appreciate you continuing to keep us well informed of the developments in Chrome OS world. So it's good. Okay, I we seem to be quickly heading towards the top of the hour here, although I know we started a minute or two late. Uh, anything else you want to definitely get in this week, sir? Well, why don't we um, why don't we do some privacy articles? I think we talked we talked about some of these, and I guess I'm going to just do it do it quick and then say what are, what are what are you doing? Uh, Wired June 24th, Google will delete all your data by default in 18 months. I'm pretty sure we talked about this one because we we said, you know, I think maybe even Peggy had a question. Well, why don't they do that? Okay. Users? Yeah. It's okay. No, it's good to talk about yeah. because I was looking today with YouTube, this media literacy project I'm doing. <clears throat> I used an account where I deleted the history and I deleted the watched videos. What are your thoughts on Google data? And and you maybe you've said this. My, I think you're pretty good keeping it. Do you? Is there a reason for us to want to delete our data other than fearing a hack? And I guess someone unscrupulous having access to our data that they you know use and abuse. Is that is that the main concern? How do right. you look at that? It's a good question, and in part because I, I've actually done professional development in this. Right, like I used to talk about uh, used to. I I haven't done it in in the in the very recent past, but I used to have an hour long conference session about how to manage your personal data in Google and how to manage your personal data in Facebook. And one of the things that I will still give shout outs to in regards to Google and Facebook, they are more transparent than everyone else. And that doesn't mean they're uh, transparent enough, but a lot of companies keep your data without one iota of information or tool to allow you to manage that. So the fact that uh, Google and Facebook, and I'll throw what is becoming quickly the gold standard for personal data, which is the Apple architecture, these companies are doing good work here to head in that direction. There's different levels here, obviously, right? Probably with Google, be I'm sorry, Apple being at the top, Google being somewhat less, and then Facebook being somewhat lower than that. But part of what I've always appreciated is that I can go in and look at the data that Facebook has on me. I could go in and see the data that, that Google has on me. But I 
choose to keep to have my my data stay in 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 Google servers because I find value in that personally. And the one piece of it that I absolutely and utterly love is the location data. Now, um, you know, I I'm going to say something with a caveat. I don't have anything to hide in there, right? I'm not saying that that's a justification for Google keeping that information. I'm just saying that one of the reasons why I happen to be very comfortable with that is that I just can't imagine any real value from a, an embarrassment standpoint of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of having that data particularly available. But uh, if it got hacked, for example, but I love going back. Uh, I'm a travel guy, right? The the worst part about COVID for me is the fact that I'm I'm now uh, four trips now have been canceled this year, and I'm guessing that at least for me personally, it's going to be at least a year or two before I, I resume my international travel schedule again. The bottom line for me is that I like to go back and look at the places I visited when I went to Iceland in in August 2013. I use Google Photos, which timestamps and and geostamps those photos, which literally places them in the locations um, when you go back into uh, uh, photo history and also map history. I love that feature personally, but again, I I like the choice. And um, there's been a lot of mocking of Facebook that they'll delete it after 18 months. I believe that that's actually been revised and it, it, you can now, there's a three-month option. They, they have different levels that you can choose. And I was given that option recently on my Android phone if I want to change it, but I prefer them to keep it. I guess for me, it's it really should be a choice of the consumer, right? That uh, you choose how long um, uh, that goes. And one thought here that's an interesting side note, uh, there's a great article from The Verge on June 22nd. Andrew Yang, who uh, we've talked about Andrew Yang here in the past because he's been an advocate for uh, the universal basic income, um, which you know suddenly is not that radical of a notion in light of the fact of COVID-19, right? I know that that debate has, has raged on in the national media because of COVID. But Andrew Yang is saying that at some point, we should just straight up ask tech companies to pay us for that data, right? Like that if we're going to provide, there's a more direct exchange of financial benefit on our part in exchange for um, uh, uh, financial compensation. So we get, we share data that we get money. I think that takes a lot of financial incentive out of tech. Maybe that's not a bad thing. You know, Facebook was, we talked about earlier, but this data question I think is important and probably part of the tech correction. Now, Wes, you're, you're a Google guy who happens to work on Apple stuff. So that, that uh, makes you, your foot is in both worlds. Are you saving your data long term? I am. And I think I mentioned there's this app called Jumbo and I turned it on to have a few things deleted. Uh, but I don't, yeah, for, especially for YouTube. I mean, that's where I think I enjoy it the most is the recommendation engine that, that really does, does well for me. So yeah, I'm not, um, thinking, I mean, the hack potential is always there, right? But, um, I trust Google. I mean, I really, I, you know, we've said this, I've said this before. I've drank the Kool-Aid. I, I think the comp, I mean, there are issues with every company, but I think the Google, you know, they don't have the do no evil, I guess, as part of their byline, but that's where they started. <laughs> My forbid, a little foreboding there, but, uh, and I don't know, but it's probably a lawyer thing that they took that out. But, um, you know, I've just, I've worked a lot with them. I've had chances to like be on the, the Boulder, you know, Google campus for a whole day for the Google Teacher Academy and, and just have a lot of friends and, and colleagues that have just done a lot of work with them. And so I, I think it's a fantastic ecosystem. Um, you know, there, there are going to be all kinds of issues that come with that level of power that Google has, but I think they're wielding it very well. And the innovation that we see, I mean, the world is much better. And, and my life is much better as a result of Google and, and what they've done and they continue to do. Uh, so, you know, I trust them. But this, again, this kind of comes back to what we were talking about as far as media literacy, right? We got to decide, you know, what sources of information uh, are we going to trust? How are we going to filter the information? These are the decisions we have to make about, you know, things we put in our house, the Internet of Things, the the kinds of smart speakers, um, you know, where we put our information, how long we allow folks to to keep it, all of those things. Um, shout out to, uh, from Peggy George to Ed Moto Summer Camp. That's pretty cool. Do you know 
kids ages 9 to 15 interested in free virtual summer camps. That is a, a pretty cool offering. Uh, Peggy's also sharing a beginner's guide to Google Photos by Sue Waters and Kathleen Morris, who are awesome over at the Edge Blogger. Uh, and she is, if you're not following Peggy George, by the way, just like stop the show right now. P. George. Okay. Follow her on Twitter. You're not on Twitter. Get on Twitter first, then follow Peggy. Uh, she's been uh, at a lot of Google summits this summer and he was up late participating in a New Zealand one. That is just awesome. I want to pick up one more uh, privacy article and then if we need, if, if you got anything else, that's good, Jason, or we can geek of the week it. This one is from the EFF and I, I got this one a couple weeks ago, but <clears throat> it is pretty eye opening. This is from June 30th. If you're not familiar, the EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and it is, as far as I know, the preeminent nonprofit globally that is really fighting for privacy rights and really trying to help us as a society be both thoughtful and conservative in our decisions about things like artificial intelligence, surveillance technology, things like that. And so this article by Bennett Ciphers and Karen Gulo says is titled Inside the Invasive Secretive Bossware Tracking Workers. And so it talks about how millions of people are working from home and there's all kinds of software that's available, but there is a, a category now called bossware. And it says, while aimed at helping employers, bossware puts workers' privacy and security at risk by logging every click and keystroke, covertly gathering information for lawsuits and using other spying features that go far beyond what is necessary and proportionate to manage a workforce. So I think this is probably an example of a digital ethics question in terms of your organization. I think, you know, it was a number of years ago where we heard reports of a one-to-one -one initiative. I think it was in the Northeast. Hopefully I'm not painting with too broad a brush there. I don't know exactly where it was, but you know, there were school employees that were surreptitiously activating webcams on cameras and, and that led to obviously very justified outcries and, you know, talk about mobile device management and the kinds of powers and permissions that are given there. So um, I assume Jason, you are not installing software uh, on everyone's machine at uh, your fine institution. Uh, I am not, right? Uh, yeah, and, and here's the hard part about this. I get not everyone's great at working at home, right? Some people draw those boundaries well, others of them do not. But it, to be honest, then hire people that the better, that they, that, that better work with your work style there, right? Like I would imagine that there are probably some work at home organizations that even though I think I'm a pretty good home worker and, and, and draw boundaries well, that probably the informality of, of the uh, expectations, uh, would, would, would be, uh, disastrous to my work style in regards to working at home. The answer isn't to, to surveil in that way. Um, and, and, you know, hire people you trust. And I, it's, it's interesting here and I can't remember the name of the book, but there was a, a work at home book, uh, written by a gentleman that works with the WordPress group. Work, WordPress is an entirely work at home organization. They don't have central offices. In fact, I know a lot of, 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 of large and small, uh, for-profit, non-profit organizations that are 100% work at home outside of the pandemic. And their advice, when I ask about advice for working at home is similar. It's not surveilling. It's, uh, it's, it's finding the people you want to work with that can work with inside this environment in your style and hire them, right? That's got to be a part of this process. If anything, I think the biggest struggle for me when I work at home and, and I'm in an organization that can very easily work at home for, uh, the next quite long while is, is staying connected enough that I feel like the spontaneous things that happen in a face-to-face -face environment can continue to happen there. Sometimes I just need to call my boss and ramble on for 10 minutes and it's not particularly useful. It's probably not a great use of his time. I sure feel better after talking to him because sometimes you need that. All right. Well, it is the top of the hour. Uh, we want to remind everybody that you can access all the show notes that we talked about tonight, as well as the ones we didn't on edtechsr.com slash links. We want to remind you that your number one homework tonight is to follow Peggy George on Twitter right away if you have not done it. Peggy, we so appreciate you joining us and contributing to our conversation. And we want to invite anybody else who is able to join us normally on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, wherever that might happen to be in your neck of the woods. We love to have folks on our chat room and the wonderful platform StreamYard, which we have now used for many months, allows us to see not only the YouTube comments, but also the Facebook 
Facebook Live comments, and so those are appreciated. Uh, Jason, when oh well, we got a geek of the week. Do you have a geek of the week for us? I was about I, to like close the show. I do. Um, I I feel like I've 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 shared this one before, but even if I have, it's great nonetheless. Archive.org has many wonderful things. Uh, if you uh, have not looked at the old uh, school videos from the 50s and 60s, they're my favorite. I used to love showing those to kids when I was a, a, an American history teacher, um, especially the duck and cover video, uh, which is an important piece of history. But that's not what I'm talking about tonight. Archive.org has an amazing software library, including tons of older applications that I think they're taking advantage of some loose words of, of kind of abandonware law that, that is a little hazy legal but you can go and play old Apple IIe games. You can go and play old Commodore games. But the one I want to share here is uh, the Oregon Trail from the Minnesota Education Consortium. Uh, used to be a public institution, became a corporation eventually. You can go to archive.org and play the old version. So this is including the 1984 version, and the one I linked to is the 1990 version of the Oregon Trail, old school Oregon Trail. And it is just a delight. I've lost hours to archive.org and they have literally thousands of old pieces of software on DOS and uh, old DOS software, old Apple software, um, um, old Commodore software that runs in emulators directly in your browser. So no software downloads required. Uh, archive.org. Uh, I put a link to the software there, but you'll see it when you first go there. Um, but uh, there's a link on the main page too. So Oh, I guarantee I have nothing quite as fun to share. Yeah, they have Joust. I, I played. Yeah, this is from the Mame, and and I was using Mac Mame. Uh, man, and now it's web based. Wow, continuing our conversation about how your browser is just about all you need. Well, my geeks of the week, uh, two quick ones. I <clears throat> put up. I've, <laughs> I've been blogging a bit more since I'm officially on holiday this month. Um, there is a. Great, great collection of um, video strategies. So flipping lessons, creating instructional videos that don't take hours and hours to create. This is a very important thing for all educators in our continuing COVID-19 global pandemic <coughs> era to be able to do. And so one of the folks that I ran across doing iPad media camps for a number of years is um, Lodge uh, McCammon. His Twitter is Pocket Lodge, and he's got a video series called uh, One Take Videos. Uh, he's also just got a great one that shows how to use your phone, a ruler, uh, a cardboard box, um, a rubber band and then a book as a counterweight and then be able to put papers down that you can, you know, sit and, and talk and whiteboard basically, you know, anything that you would want to make a video for. I will remind everybody, I heard this at the MSON conference I attended last week that when it comes to videos for students and, and screencasts, if it's not three to five minutes long, just don't bother. Actually do bother, but you need to break it up into more segments because that's something that research as well as anecdotally you'll hear from teachers who've done a lot of flipping. Kids just don't want to watch 12 minute videos. But if you can break that up into three to five minutes, they'll watch more than, than one video. So good advice. Uh, check out, um, Lodge and his work. And then I, like I said, have put up several, several different posts lately. Uh, this one that I'm going to include in the show notes is I entitled it faster home wifi via ethernet backhaul. <clears throat> but I've been wanting to, yes, Peggy says, chunk it. That's right. Chunk your content. I have been wanting to get a, a hardwire back here to uh, the office where I, I am right now. And uh, for, <laughs> because it's a pain, <laughs> it takes a while. And uh, I didn't want to ask anybody else in our family, whatever. Uh, my son helped me this weekend get it done. So um, I have information about the, you know, uh, monoprice Ethernet cable that I got and went to Lowe's and got a crimper and I haven't run cable for a while. And, uh, the, the bottom line is we couldn't get, uh, anything over a hundred megabits per second, even though like out in the living room, we can get 250, 300, 300 plus, um, over Wi-Fi, wi uh, AC. Um, now I can get over 200 here in the office and it's because the, uh, the, the backhaul, you know, internet Coming through the attic, it was 110 degrees on Saturday, uh, and Alex was up there more than I was. Uh, anyway, it's right next door. Yay, that's good. And so 
Also, if you have not looked at upgrading your home connectivity, folks, this is the time before the summer. So look at your router, look at your Wi-Fi. If you're not using a next generation mesh, you can probably get something from your service provider, whether that's Cox or Comcast or whoever. If you want to save money over the long haul, I recommend Google Wi-Fi. Eero is also, you know, good, but it's this next generation wireless that is hugely better and allows you to manage your network. And people will say, oh, but it's so simple and you can't do sophisticated things. I can do absolutely everything that I want to do with my Google Wi-Fi to include, you know, hosting a Java-based Minecraft server and needing to put it, you know, put in port forwarding, which is a bit geeky, but that kind of thing for gamers, it, you know, there's really not too much more, I think, that most folks are going to have to do with their home network. So Dr. Neifer, when you're not here on Wednesday night, where can people find you? Um, quick note, you have more bandwidth going to your house than some counties in eastern Montana. I am on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I blog with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. And again, both Wes and I, next week, Mountain Moot, mountainmoot.com. And you, sir. Awesome. Uh, so, yes, I'm W. Fryer on Twitter and blogging at speedofcreativity.org doing more on media literacy. And I set up a Google site here a few months, weeks ago. I don't know how long media literacy.westfriar.com. And you can check out the conspiracies and culture wars project and resources. I'll be posting my slides for the Moodle moot keynote there. Uh, and I am looking forward to learning with everybody at the Moodle moot. This is one of the wonderful benefits of the time in which we live is that there are more virtual opportunities than ever to be able to learn and to be able to learn for free and together. So we want to thank everybody for, um, tuning in. Uh, Peggy's asking if we're going to do a, a show next week. What if we take the, the week off? You want to do that? Cause it is moot week or, or, or yeah. Yeah, sure. Let's go yeah, ahead. Because we, we would normally, as we've said maybe last week, have a few natural breaks where one of us is going to travel. And, you know, there's we canceled our camping trip. We were going to go go camping at the end of the month. And New Mexico's got a, you know, 14-day quarantine and telling travelers to stay home. So we're going to stay home. But we'll be back. Check out the Moodle Moot next week. And uh, the hashtag uh, MTMoot, I think, yes. is the hashtag. Yep. And uh, it's going to be great. And uh, that's awesome. I think I heard last week they had 350 folks. So they've had 150 new registrants if, if they're up to 500. That, that's that's fantastic. Yep. So we're we actually worried about z maxing out their Zoom room. That's that's how big it's been so far. Cool. So hey, really awesome. That's yeah, great it's great. To have. Fantastic. So until next time, we want to encourage everybody to stay savvy, stay safe. Uh, follow Peggy George. We'll see you guys next time here on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night.